Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Back to the Future, starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Crispin Glover, written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, and directed by Robert Zemeckis. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. We're continuing on with our Summer Box Office Hall of Fame, part two. This is the second time we've done this cast, and it's been a lot of fun this time looking at Batman 89, E.T., and then today's film, Back to the Future. Really excited to talk about this. We just finished watching it in the other room, and we're going to do what we did last year on our Ghostbusters episode, which is really kind of hone in and focus on the screenplay aspect of this film. So if you haven't listened to the Ghostbusters episode, a thing that comes up a lot is a term known as a beat. Mm -hmm. So beat is a point in a script that is essential to have a well-fleshed-out story. So we'll play, or the design that Jesse and I tend to lean to is the 10-beat method. There's several other ones, but mostly it's broken down into 10 crucial points, and there's a philosophy behind this that builds on the idea of creating conflict within the viewer, listener, watcher, whoever it might be, and then relieving that conflict in a meaningful way. And there's a very interesting philosophical structure that we all go through with story. And so all of that being said, that builds to a 10-beat structure. Occasionally it's 11, but mostly we're going to go with a 10-beat structure that we will break this down. So I'm sure there's some people out there that say, we don't believe in that. We like a 12. or That's fine. There's still five or six can't miss absolute have to be in there mm-hmm. in a particular order. And I hadn't thought of this movie in a beat sort of breakdown like we're going to do, yeah. but it's it's on the nose, spot yeah. on. Yeah, well, like I kind of trying to think back to like film schools, like the one that always gets kind of taught is Citizen Kane and no qualms with that movie. That movie is a masterpiece. Right. But I think you could apply the same type of formula to a lot of other films. So that's what I kind of want. We did last year with Ghostbusters and then now again with this one. You mentioned the word conflict. This film is not short of conflict whatsoever. Right. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Some more of the Basil Hayden's Dark Ride. This one's treating us pretty well. Mm-hmm. Good this week, too. Again, it's sweet. It's I, I like for anyone that's interested in trying a rye you know, rise are, like I said, they're very intense. They almost kind of pop you right in the mouth. But this one, like, starts easy, it rests easy, and it's got, like, some sweet tasting notes with it. I wouldn't say sweet is usually a term I would incorporate with any type of whiskey, but it does have that. Mm-hmm. Again, I we talked about it a little bit last week. There's that hint of almond and cherry, which for me are very similar, that I am picking up in this, too. It's This is a nice bottle. Excellent. And nice a nice price to go with a nice bottle, too. There you go. It gets 40-ish. Perfect. Yeah. It's perfect range. Sure. Well, let's get to our flight question. Gee, Matt, I wonder if we're going to talk about the music again this week. I don't know. (laughs) Back to the Future features some great cast of characters, Marty McFly, Biff Tannen, but 
Most of all, Dr. Emmett Brown, portrayed by Christopher Lloyd, one of the great film scientists, and I think we're going to talk a lot about him today. Who's your other favorite movie scientist, Matt? There's a few that I kicked the idea, you know, maybe this one or that one. I like (laughs) Dr. Bruce Banner, probably not enough to be number one, but I think that's an interesting character. But I like the idea of Jekyll and Hyde. Mm -hmm. Um, I like the doctor, and I'll be damned if I can remember his name right now, in The Dad in Eyes Without a Face because I understand why he's going through the process that he's going through. So Mm -hmm. I kicked the tires on that one a little bit too. Mm -hmm. But neither of them were quite able to take down number one for me, and that's Mr. Colin Clive as Dr. Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. It's one thing... Not just any Dr. Frankenstein, Colin Clive. No, exactly. I don't want... (laughs) Don't give me Kenneth Branagh or I want... yeah. He's just so regal and pretentious and uptight and overwrought with the volume of importance that he's taking on. But all that aside, that's not what does it for me. The idea that man, and I mean man as a specific genus to a gender, man, male, Mm -hmm. as a creator of life or a bringer of life is impossible, biologically impossible throughout you know, not, not being able to birth someone into the world. Yeah. And I think that that movie hinges on his inability to do that and the jealousy that he has towards those that can add with that a desire to play God and you have a very interesting structure mm-hmm. for an anti-hero. Yeah. Because that's essentially what he is. Now, you can do it through science. And you can say you're trying to create a better this or a better that. Or it's all for the betterment of society. But that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's not. And that movie hinges for me and this dichotomy in the windmill. Oh, When they're looking at each other through the gears of that spinning apparatus. The monster in the mirror. The monster in the mirror. Mm-hmm. We're going to do that movie someday. That'll be a good one. Yeah. Anyway, that's my number one. That's perfect. That's not I, not Victor Frankenstein, Dr. Henry Frankenstein, Mr. Colin Clyde. <laughs> Mr. Colin Clyde. Yeah. And just his greasy hair and his wiry frame yeah. and his spindly nature. And even you can tell when that guy is not in a heightened state of anxiety, he probably walks around in like a seven. There's no fours in that guy's life. Yeah. He is seven or 11, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. He's just so tightly wound and it plays really well. Excellent. I think that's because, you know, I think about at this stage in my life and, and children and whether it be students or my family, there has to be an element of patience. Mm-hmm with any upbringing of that that you create, whether it's a dog or children or Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's just not much patience in Dr. Frankenstein. And there's even less in the way Colin Clive plays it. He's just so tightly wound. On edge the entire time. Snare drum tight. Mm -hmm. It plays well for me. Excellent. So that's my guy. That's great. He's he's great. I I flirted with that one. and, And you mentioned Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. I, I went with one. It's another film from my childhood. I watched this movie to death as a kid, and it, I went more so just for the portrayal of the scientist. And I don't think he realizes how brilliant he truly is. 
And this is Rick Moranis as Dr. Wayne Selinski from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. This is a man, he drives around in a VW Bug, essentially creating, like, now, if Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was a real-life thing, don't you think he'd be maybe the most famous scientist of all time if he created that? Oh, yeah. I think that trumps (laughs) everything. Mm -hmm. And he's doing all this in the attic of his suburban house driving his little vw bug doesn't even know if it's going to work because he's been blowing up everything and it's not until the kids accidentally shrink themselves that, he, that you kind of get that but he real is just such a likable character and i think the latest rumor was disney plus is flirting with doing like a honey i shrunk the kids television show of some kind or a reboot or whatever i want with him attached and they got him out of retirement, he went into acting retirement in the mid '90s yeah. after his wife passed, and yep. he says he's on board to come back to to play this role that I think pretty much defines him. Like just looking at him, that's that's him. Mm-hmm. I agree. Whether he's shrinking things or that the kids are, are blowing them up to the size, you know, of like Godzilla, uh, there's just something really likable about him in his you know pursuits of invention. You know, talking about an inventor today, he's uh, an inventing scientist. So that's who I'm going to pick. Wayne Selinski. Good choices. I don't know if you ever got to do this, Matt. Maybe this might have kind of pastured a little Disney window. But at Disneyland, they they had a... It was where Captain EO used to be, but it was Honey, We Shrunk the Audience. Did you ever get to do that? I didn't. It was one of those like 4D interactive shows and you had the 3D glasses, but then like stuff would like like hit your legs or like like squirt at you like like water and stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he, he came in the, and they did that in like I think the mid, mid-90s and it... it that, that ride was a blast. I love that thing. That's cool. Yeah. Love your choice. Here's two. It's excellent. Nice. We're going to talk about Emmett Brown here coming up, uh, but uh, yeah, let's let's have some more of this Basil Hayden star cry, and let's get to our review breakdown of Back to the Future. Future. That's where you're going. That's right. 25 years into the future. I've always dreamed of seeing the future, looking beyond my ears, seeing the progress of mankind. Why not? I'll also be able to see who wins the next 25 World Series. Uh, Doc. Huh? Uh, look me up when you get there. It's going to be a lot of New York Yankees World Series. <laughs> I was going to say, it's pretty much been the same then as it has been in the past. You can look at two teams. That's the Yankees and the Cardinals, mm. and you'll see the same thing happening going forward. Pretty much. Yeah. Excellent. Let's get right into this thing, you know, Back to the Future, Steven Spielberg presents, we get our titles, and then what we would call the opening scene. Yeah. And we were kind of just talking during the movie about just kind of the brilliance of this opening scene. My favorite part about it is it introduces so many concepts and ideas without one shred of dialogue with the roving camera through this room, Doc Brown's garage of clocks and we see the the plutonium on the ground we see that he's an inventor but maybe not such a refined inventor with einstein's you know dog (laughs) uh feeding apparatus and then as it pans across the tv we learn about the theft of plutonium something that 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 we're going to find out about later and then as marty enters in we're not even we don't even see his face until the fateful the fateful moment when he strums his guitar but it's all amplification and we learn a lot about marty with not a whole lot and it's 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 a really i think it's about three and a half minutes fairly long little opening scene but i think it says and sets up so much about the movie that's very important well time is the first thing Mm -hmm. 
and all of those clocks, and you were happy that they had a Denver Broncos yeah, clock that, that you had never noticed. That before. was weird, yeah. So there was that. Um, look, obviously, time's important in the film, and in Doc Brown's house lab, it's clearly the purveying element that he's focused on. Mm-hmm. I would argue that the reason he's incapable of feeding Einstein and has created an arm to kick the canned dog food out and dump it in the dog dish and throw it away for him is because he is so preoccupied with time that he can't make any to do that. But here's what's important. He could forget, and then you have a forgetful bad pet owner, and that gives us not a great start with Doc Brown. But the fact that he still continues to feed his dog in this robotic arm Mm -hmm. has a compassionate element to it. It also is a little bit sloppy Mm -hmm. because it's spilling over the dish. Yeah, unrefined. And right. And I don't want to say zany Mm because I don't think zany is quite the right word for him. And I don't want to say harebrained because that sort of just fits like his hair style. Yeah. And I don't want to say forgetful. Um, No, neurotic maybe. Because that wouldn't be appropriate because deep down he's kind of secretly brilliant. He's secretly brilliant. Yeah. And forgotten and misplaced and disregarded. In a lot of ways, I think to Marty, he's the grandfather to what George McFly is as father. Mm -hmm. Certainly a father figure in this film. Yep. All of that being said, what would you say, three minutes? Three and a half, yeah. The other character, so we get... Like, this is Doc Brown's world, and now you're introduced to him. And we don't even see him. Right. Yeah. Which is even more important, because what an unforgettable-looking character they give us in Christopher Lloyd. Yep. The other thing we get about Marty is two important things. And it's not his attire. It's the two things that he comes with, a guitar and a skateboard. Mm -hmm. And those two play really importantly in the film. Shockingly, the guitar more than the skateboard. Mm -hmm. But it's a very organic and easy way to set a stage or set the movie's tone so the audience immediately becomes familiar with the two main characters i mean let's just talk about the dog food dish for Mm -hmm. a minute first time you saw it i don't know if you can even remember yeah you see the dog food being dumped in the dish it's spilling over the sides what is your thought about the person that set that up yeah messy yeah, it's it's spilling over. It looks unappetizing. It's someone that's not quite put together. But there's a messy that's like a bunch of beer cans and takeout um, Chinese food containers in the house. Yep. And then messy with dog food. Yep. Compassionate versus sloppy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. It's a brilliant opening. Mm-hmm. I hadn't realized it. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie. I think I said last week maybe a decade. It's been longer than a decade. Okay. Maybe we might be. 20, maybe 20. Oh, it's wow. been a long time. Okay. And I'd forgotten about all that coming back at it at a time in my life when I didn't have a writing background, the first or 15th viewing, but now where I do, mm-hmm. it's a really good opening. Yeah. So then the clocks go off. Oh, no, no. Well, Marty strums his guitar and blows out the amplifier. Yeah. And we learn that he's got this kind of, yeah, passion for music. And Doc, we're setting up everything. Meet me tonight at one fifteen or one one whenever. Bring bring uh, and bring the camera and all this and that. And the clocks go off. He's like, my experiment works. So he's like experimenting with time and and doing experiments. He's like, 
Doc, are you trying to tell me that it's 825? I'm late for school. <laughs> then boom, Huey Lewis in the news, the power of love. And then another thing in, in screenwriting, and we talk about it a lot on the podcast, is the rule of three. Certainly a rule that we try to apply, but the rule being that if you're going to set something up to pay it off to kind of let the audience in on it at least three times. Right. And I think we get the first one right here, which is Marty using uh, other vehicular transport to speed up his skateboard journey, mm -hmm. just kind of tailing in on, on the on the on the back of a truck or like a cop car, because that's going to come into play later uh, at a pretty key sequence there in the in the middle of the film. But it's, it's just so subtle. You don't realize that you're seeing it and becoming familiar with it, that when you see it later, when Marty needs to use it to his, his advantage, that you're like, I have the, it, it pays off, I think, dividends later in the film. And then the music one that you just mentioned. So so they go to Hill Valley High. This is Hill Valley, California. And Hill Valley has seen better days. It's like a total dump right now. And his high school is all graffitied and everything. And yeah, this Mr. Strickland, this all law-abiding principle and he i love the the line he the gets not donald pleasant's Ple donald pleasant <laughs> he's so donald pleasant i know i love the line that he gives no mcfly ever amounted to anything in the hill history of hill valley just like just like words that sting like Boy, what an indictment yeah nobody ever amounted to anything in your family in that town not only calling him out but you're calling your dad out too oh my gosh so yeah that's rough mm -hmm. and Marty's, you know, a musician. He's got this band. They're called the Pinheads. And they they want to win this battle of the bands to make some progress in his rock journey. And they get, like, cut off the stage by Huey Lewis. Of all, like, We talked about the self-deprecation of musical with Rashida Jones in the I Love You Man episode. It's the same thing. Like, right. it's so funny to see Huey Lewis. It's too loud. Yeah. Cuts him off. And he's like, well, I'm never going to be able to get out of this town or do anything if we can't even book the the high school battle of the bands gig like marty is set up to be just so low in in this opening it reminded me a lot of the opening 20 minutes of spider-man 2 oh sure good and really following a character and instead of building them up to in order to give a relevant character arc what's easier to do is to kind of break them down and then have them build up throughout the course of the film and i think we do that because we go right from that to marty's home life and that's far from like an ideal picture. What I love about the downtrodden state that we meet Marty in and see him existing in, he doesn't pout or whine or cry. I wouldn't say that he's pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get back in the game kind of a character either. He just recognizes what's going on. And I will say he's steadfast. Um, and, but that's not the point of the film. Mm -hmm. I just think it's a nice, refreshing look at, okay, this guy has some things that are against him. Yeah. And then when we meet his family, which is mom and dad, and dad's watching some old episode of The Honeymooners mm -hmm. and is completely detached from his siblings and his wife, mom wakes <clears throat> up with a bottle of vodka and puts herself to sleep with a bottle of vodka, which yeah. I love that too, because that's paid off. Actually, that payoff mm -hmm. is actually the setup for when we go back mm -hmm. and we get the actual setup, which is her drinking in the car. It's yeah. sort of backwards. Yep. But- a lot of those things are backwards. Yeah. You guys want to know how Chuck Berry learned how to play rock and roll? Johnny B. Good was not his. That's stolen material, man, according <laughs> to this movie. That's really funny. <laughs> so, yeah, I like the character in, in Marty. And Michael J. Fox pulls it off perfectly. He recognizes that there's not a whole lot of light in his 
in his world. Yeah. Um, but he's still going to pursue it anyway and not cry about it. And I like the reversal. We'll talk about that term coming up later. Just the whole reversal aspect of this kind of just dinner scene because Lorraine, Marty's mom, it was like that Jennifer Parker, I don't like her. There's something about a girl that, that goes around like, I, I don't want you messing around with that towards the end of the film. And she's like that Jennifer, she's that, that's a nice girl, Marty. And then even the the sister where she's like, when am I ever going to get a date? And then in the end, she's juggling Greg or, or Bob or, or yeah, which one is it? And then the brother who's like, I don't know what he's wearing in that opening scene. looks like a pizza boy. Uh, and then he's wearing a suit. There's so much growth by Marty's eventual time travel that what's set up here is totally paid off in the, the final sequence of the film. You brought it up last week, the high-concepted nature of just the title, yeah. Back to the Future. Okay, so time and the way we open the movie, time is going to be what this film is about. I couldn't help but notice when mom was drinking at dinner, mm -hmm. the cup she was using. Mm -hmm. It's that semi-glastic, pla plastic glass, glastic, mm -hmm. with the sort of faded suns or sunflower decals on there. Mm -hmm. Man, I'm telling <clears throat> you, we had that set yeah. of glasses growing up. That's straight from 1977. <laughs> That's good. And them watching the honeymooners during dinner and dad doing like the crossword puzzle in his short sleeve shirt with the tie and his same hairstyle and his horn rims and all that. He's just out of time. And the callbacks in this scene even call back later when he's eating dinner with his grandparents, Lorraine's family, because they're sitting at the table watching the honeymooners as well. When you talk about the rule of three, it's tricky not to gag your reader or audience with it so much that it's so heavy-handed it's stifling. Yeah. Marty's going to always be late and always need to go faster in this film, whether it's on his skateboard, whether it's get away from Biff, whether it's take the DeLorean, which never runs because DeLorean's never ran <laughs> even in the mid-80s to 88 miles an hour. That's if you could get it out of neutral and maybe downhill. You think that was intentional? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty genius. It is. <laughs> of course. He's always late. Even like Doc Brown, the call at his lab, and Marty's late to school. Mm -hmm. um, Donald Pleasance Jr. gives him his fourth tardy pass in a day. He's all He always needs to go faster. Mm -hmm. So again... Well, even at the end of the film, too, right. we're jumping all over the place, but just to kind of talk about these callbacks now, he even sets the time machine 10 minutes, and he's still late to mm -hmm. save Doc. Which, I want to get to this a little bit later, but... Mm -hmm. What's another term? Maybe you don't, maybe you know this. Maybe you don't. Maybe this might be aging me. What's another term for a girl who is eager or loose or amorous? Fast. You you said it. <clears throat> and his mom in the car is pretty fast. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Speed, time. It's all set up at the very beginning of the film, and it's carried through as a through line from beginning to end. And I want to recognize the writing and the directorial elements to make sure that that was highlighted, but not stifling to the viewers. Yeah. And it's really masterfully and subtly yet continuously weaved into this story. Can I tell you about, I, I set this up uh, a little earlier about kind of the origins of this film. Matt, you're gonna you're gonna love this this story. Uh, so in my research, I kind of found out a little bit about how Back to the Future came to be, and it was like Bob Gale had like 
gone home one holiday and like went through like some old yearbooks of his parents and was like, I wonder what it would be like, like, would I be friends with my dad or my mom um, if I went to school with them? And I thought about that too. Like, you know what I mean? Like, were, were my, was my mom popular or was this and that? Like, like, would you get along with your parents? So they, they came up with this idea about time travel. This is so ludicrous. I'm glad that they changed this. But the, the original idea of the, the time machine vehicle was supposed to be a refrigerator. And the only way to kind of make it power was to go through a Nevada test site in a nuclear explosion. Now, they obviously changed that, but they used that concept in another movie, Matt. Can you think of what it is? <laughs> Refrigerator, nuclear explosion. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, Indy 4. Oh, well, that's why I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> oh, my. That was good. Oh. You lobotomized that one from memory. Yeah. So that idea showed up in another Steven Spielberg vehicle. So they they eventually changed it. They moved it to a DeLorean. They 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 really fleshed out this this screenplay. This is the best part of the story. We talked about Columbia last week hanging on to ET. They put it in turnaround and sold it off to Universal. And Universal ended up with the biggest hit of the 1980s. Actually, mm-hmm. they did the same thing with this film. Columbia owned the rights to the Back to the Future screenplay. They had no intention to make it. They put it in turnaround, and. They were making a film. I've never seen this. Maybe you have. It's a film called Big Trouble with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin. We might have to check it out. It's a spoof, but it's essentially a spoof on double indemnity. Oh, really? And they couldn't get it off the ground or the green light because they didn't own the rights to the film Double Indemnity. It's so similar, apparently. Mm. So Universal was the property rights to Double Indemnity. So... The exec at Universal was like, I've always really liked that Back to the Future screenplay, so I'll tr- we'll trade you the rights to Double Indemnity for the rights to Back to the Future. Oh, my goodness. And they made that. We've never seen Big Trouble, so obviously it, it, was, that. it was some bomb for the rights to the screenplay that Universal, like Universal again making the biggest film of 1985 isn't that crazy like that is crazy there's a theme that keeps coming up here yeah if you go back to that's that's columbia's failures two consecutive (laughs) weeks in a row if you go back to that episode we did some months ago that was the best movies that never made the screen Mm -hmm. i know there were two entries from columbia on that as well yeah i we were kidding earlier when we were eating gee i wonder why that company's not in business anymore they've been absorbed by sony Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's rhetorical obviously just four misses at least on huge movies. Crazy though, of all the double indemnity. In order for us to make this spoof forgettable film, we got to get the rights to that and we got to give this very high concept idea to them. Crazy. Crazy how Hollywood works. <laughs> I'd love to find the story of the pitch on this. If mm-hmm. this is an elevator pitch that was sold on title. Well, the other thing that happened too, so I think Spielberg and uh, Zemeckis were buddies Mm -hmm. because Spielberg pre-Amblin E.T. had produced used cars, which I love. Which Bob Gale wrote. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Mm -hmm. Which Bob Gale also wrote. Uh Uh-huh. And they weren't big. They were kind of bombs, actually. Mm -hmm. So... He was nervous to kind of get behind that. He was worried about, man, the only way I'm getting work is because Steven Spielberg's name's on this thing. So he wanted to do something without him. That was Romancing the Stone. Big hit. And so it, it kind of said, Steve, and then he went back to him and was like, do you want to kind of partner up with this thing? And that's kind of how they brought this whole thing together. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah. 
Romancing the Stone is an interesting film as well. That movie spawned the idea that was one of the entries in that episode I was talking about what didn't make it. I think it was called Smoke and Mirrors. Yes, yes, exactly. That movie inspired that Columbia Miss as well. Mm -hmm. It's weird how all of this is so interconnected. Clearly, the industry is a copycat industry. Mm -hmm. And clearly, directors and producers like to work with people that they've had successful relationships with in the past. Josh Trank, you're in real trouble right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's also incestuously interwoven, but Back to incest. Let's mm-hmm. talk more about this film. <laughs> Back to what the film's about. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's kind of get to the inciting incident. Back okay. to the future. Obviously, it's a film about time travel. Mm-hmm. So what's going to kind of kickstart this whole adventure is the introduction of our time machine. This right. is the DeLorean. What a, I turned to you and I was like, Matt, was this car a joke in the 80s when it came out? And you were like, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Other than it looking kind of cool, and that's debatable. Um yeah, it was unreliable. Well, probably because there was so much cocaine in the gas tank, you couldn't get it to function properly. Like, <laughs> they go hand in hand. <laughs> right? Funny. Yeah. But I love the reveal out of the back of the semi, and here comes Doc, and then now we finally get to see this character, and you said it, like, appearance-wise, he's, like, his mad scientist, like, kooky hair, and, you know, his whole getup. We even remarked on his, like, Nike high tops, which are pretty sweet. Yeah, orange. And what I love most about this film and... I knew this was going to come up. It was It's almost unavoidable, but, you know, Avengers Endgame is just so heavy-handed in its explanation of time travel that it really sucks me out of the enjoyment of watching that film. Here, we get it in, like, five minutes, and it's all just so simple that, like, once we get to 1955, you forget all about the science of time travel, and you're able to just fully enjoy the story of Marty and Doc. And I love that. It, this is a thing. It runs on plutonium. Uh, once this thing hits 88 miles per hour, it's going to go. And they, they do a little watch experiment with Einstein. It's one minute slow. And, yeah, it's it's all very simple. It's got a – I love that dash thing. Like, here's where you're going, here's where you were, and here's where you've been, and, and all this and that. Three simple markers for the audience to see. Mm-hmm. Future, present, past. Yep. I, so smart. Yeah. I, I like the simplicity of this type of, of time travel. I like the simplicity of it too, because again, with whether it be butterfly effect or in game or any time travel films, mm-hmm. we always get hung up on, I can't go to the time that's not my own and make too big a ripple because then that's going to screw up my time. And this movie acknowledges that at the end. And I think it's done in a very smart way. Look, the truth is if you're leaving your time now to go to another time, you are going there to create a ripple. Mm-hmm. So this idea that we can't go there and have too heavy a footprint for fear that it might be some terrible fossil in our time is mostly absurd. No one goes to another time to not do anything. Yeah, And you might be going to another time to have a footprint in order so the fossil in this time will thus then be different. So get away from what you're worried about and yeah. go ahead and do it, Avengers. Yeah, whereas Avengers Endgame's lack of consequence in the past gives me like literal migraines thinking about it in the shower. This film's little literal consequences of messing with the past is the conflict of the film. Right. And it's brilliant. And don't you agree the reason you go to the past, present, or future mm-hmm. is to create yeah. a butterfly effect or a ripple or a footprint? That's yeah. the whole reason. Yeah. 
So just go ahead and be okay in that space. And it's not like Marty does it on purpose. So here in this explanation of the DeLorean and the time, and they're filming it to kind of get this evidence, Doc's going to go on a trip to, to, to the pastures, that sound clip I played at the beginning. And oh, here come the Libyans. The Libyans. The Libyans. I love it. It's the Libyans. <laughs> so of its time. It's only two of them. I know. Th- that's kind of hilarious. And a VW bus. <laughs> VW bus. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, the Libyan nationalists. And <laughs> and they come. After they, the Grateful Dead stopped their tour, they decided to go shoot up Doc Brown. Yeah. They shoot him up and Marty has nowhere else to go and just j- jumps in the, in the time machine and really kind of gives it a go. Ends up in 1955, and, and we're, so he, he went back in time to, to escape not being killed. And so him being here, it's not like he came in here to intentionally like screw things up. He's just exploring, and it's he encounters all this stuff. I love that scene in the barn with the spaceman. Yeah. Maybe that's where the look of the DeLorean paid off because it is so science fiction-y with the, with the winged doors opening up. But... The way he comes out, he's got the radioactive suit on, and they they, they flip out on him. The, the, the father, the pop paws shooting at him. The twin pines proprietor, he's the one growing the pine trees. I love it. And then once we get to Hill Valley, and again, so set up well in that in that opening bit with the town square, where the theater is like a porno theater now. There are, there's bums and trash and graffiti everywhere. Now it's sprawling, idyllic Americana 1955. People on the streets, and it looks so clean and pristine. And he's just like, oh, my God, where am I? (laughs) You stopped the movie and looked at the time. 30 minutes. So essentially we want to get to the end of the first act about a third of the way through the film. There's a little bit of play in that, but around 30-ish minutes. And it's pretty easy to recognize on screen because what you usually get is a fade out. And then a fade back in. In older films especially. Yeah, but even even still today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yes, especially in older films like, okay, guys, the first part of the movie, the beginning's over. Mm-hmm. Watch, it goes dark, and now we start the middle. Yep. Beginning, middle, the second part, the middle, the second act. You mentioned Frankenstein. It happens in Frankenstein after he says, now I truly know what it feels like to be God. <sighs> and then Ouch. we come back, and they're like, what's, what's Henry up to? Act two. So this is much quicker because it's the car. Mm-hmm. The DeLorean jumping back to 1955. Sparks fade to black, fade back into light, and the barn <laughs> crash. Act two. Done fast. Mm-hmm. So there's the time element still in play here. And you're in act two. And we're about, I think we stopped it at 35, so take about a maybe a minute or two. We're like 32 minutes in. Mm-hmm. It's perfectly timed. Yeah. Yeah. Like right when it's supposed to happen. And they, the audience needs to know that the quest has been taken, and we are in process of accomplishing whatever quest or thing we're after. And that closing of color, the fade out to dark, and then the coming back in is the curtain going up and down, going back to like classic, classic theater. Mm -hmm. It's literally that. Yeah. They just do it really fast in this film. Now there's many types of journeys you can take with your protagonist. We talked about on Star Wars, Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey with the wise sage and the companions to fight evil, and yeah. it's very well told in that film. Mm-hmm. Here we tell another, probably one of my favorites and probably a bit of an easier one to write, which is taking your protagonist, putting him in a setting or a scenario that they're unfamiliar with. We call that the fish out of water. 
literally Marty is a man out of time. He's familiar with the setting, but not with the environment, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> fish out of water. You take a fish out of water and you watch them struggle. Now that's cruel in the real world, mm -hmm. but in film we're watching Marty struggle. He yeah. doesn't know the time. His clothes don't fit. Um, he meets his parents at a younger age, realizes his dad is a peeping Tom. Um, well, it's that first interaction that really sticks out to me, okay. and it introduces our antagonistical element oh, sure. of the film. Hey, McFly! What do you think you're doing? Biff. Hey, I'm talking to you, McFly, you Irish bug. Oh, hey, Biff. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Yeah, you got my homework finished, McFly? Uh... Well, actually, I figured since it wasn't due till Monday. Hello? Hello? Anybody home? Hey, think, McFly. Think. I gotta have time to recopy it. You realize what would happen if I hand in my homework and your handwriting? I'll get kicked out of school. You wouldn't want that to happen, would you? Would you? Well, now, of course not. No, if I wouldn't no. want that to happen. What are you looking at, butthead? <laughs> I have three things to say here. First, Billy Zane's one of the cronies in the background. <laughs> we talk about Billy Zane a lot as a way. Strange, <laughs> right? So I was glad we could point that out. Uh, <laughs> so is he. <laughs> is Biff Tannen maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest movie school bullies of all time? Yeah. Certainly, I mean, yeah, off the top of my head, I yes, there's yeah. my I, my bodyguard might come to mind, but mm -hmm. yes, sure. And three, again, talking about setups and payoffs, this is the second time they've had this particular conversation because earlier we are introduced to Biff, who's like, I imagine him as like a used used car salesman, yeah, <laughs> with his greased over you know mop, talking to George McFly, who's all Poindexter-y. This same conversation, but it's about like work assignments. What's going to happen if I if I turn in your assignment with my with your handwriting? I'm going to get fired. He says expelled here. So we're getting just kind of the reverse. Biff is the same person that he is in the future. Setups and payoff, mm -hmm. consistency. And I'll ask you mm -hmm. if this has been happening since Biff <laughs> and Dad have been. What's Dad's name? George. George. Yeah. If Biff and George have been in high school together, and is still now going on in the workplace. It's been going on for a long 30 years time, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I'm not trying to be punny or cute. No, it's true. It's been going on for a long time. Jordan I mean that in the context of what time is in this film. Well, George is stunted then if this is the treatment that he's had for 30 years. Right. Yeah. And so if dad raises son, which is another younger version of dad, again, time mm -hmm. back in the future, future, present, past, all that is in play here. Yeah. Then that means Marty is headed for the same likely outcome unless the footprint is enough to change it. Mm -hmm. That footprint needs to be on Biff's ass. Yeah. And it's going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So then we meet dad and then we go meet mom, which is George. He's a peeping Tom <laughs> looking at it, a Lorraine change uh, through the window. But then Marty has to save him because he's going to get hit by the car. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget that. When Michael J. Fox's head hits the paper. I don't know how they faked that. It's maybe. almost like it really happened. Yeah, maybe they didn't. I don't know. That looks like it hurt. Yeah. And I like the line from his grandfather. One of these damn kids jumped in front of my car again. <laughs> it's a 
common occurrence of these kids peeping on the rain through the window. <laughs> right. But then, yeah, we get just more complexity to the conflict. So in order for a good screenplay to be at all relevant, you know, you have to have a good through line conflict. To me, the conflict of this film is Marty goes back in time and totally disrupts the flow of his parents getting together because his mom is instantly infatuated with him. He's taken the place of his dad mm-hmm. in the same way she falls in love as she's told the story to the kids with dad getting hit by a car. By, yeah, saving him. Now son gets hit by a car mm-hmm. and mom is fast. Yep. And we also realize that mom's not entirely telling the truth Yeah, when she's warning about you know, the nature and springtime and a young man's fancy and all that nonsense. I never drank. I never parked. And man, mom is in his bedroom after he's been hit by the car. She's tending to his little head um, with her ice bag. Mm-hmm. She makes a comment about his purple Calvin Klein underwear. Mm-hmm. She's really comfortable with him being in a state of undress. And we see how ready to rock and roll this young woman is because she invites her parents to allow Marty to stay the night. Yeah. And he can stay in her room. Yeah. Could you imagine rolling on your parents with that? Yeah. Hey guys, uh, it's snowing tonight and this person came over to my house and I don't want her to drive home. So she could just stay here in my room. And he's like, I got to get out of here. Cause she like puts, puts her so hand sure. on his leg and he's like, I got to go like this and that. And I, the other joke I like running through is his best. Yeah. What's that? He's no, got his life jacket. His life preserver. He thinks he's, he thinks he's going to drown. He's a sailor. He's a sailor. And then the mom makes the thing. And then Doc later is like, you're here from the Coast Guard's Alliance <laughs> to make a donation. Uh, what do you think of Michael J. Fox's Marty McFly? Perfect. Yeah. I can't imagine it being anybody else. And I know you want to go off on that. So here it is. Well, they originally wanted him. Yeah. But because of how contracts work, family ties had him tied up. Which was a the biggest show on TV at that time. I think mm-hmm. Family Ties and Cheers were back-to-back at that time. Wow. I, I'm, I'm not 100, but I'm pretty sure that it was Family Ties first and Cheers to follow. That's NBC, right, I think? Big NBC night. Yep. So they wanted him, so they had to fall back on their second choice, which was Eric Stoltz, who's a cap- very capable actor. I like him in... Some kind of wonderful. Yes, uh, and uh, Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. Mask. Rocky Dennis. <laughs> yeah, no, he's got, yeah. Yeah, he's good. So th- they got him, but like Michael J. Fox, you said it pretty well. Like he's just, his energy is just comes off as comedic without being like overly funny. Yeah. It's just got this like nice playful presence to it. And I guess Eric Stoltz played it very serious, gave a great serious performance, but that's not the tone of the film. The tone is playful while being serious about its stakes they're like a month or two in filming this thing and Zemeckis has to like have this like come to Jesus moment where he's like, we got the wrong actor playing the lead. Like to put yourself in those shoes to not only do you have to go tell your actor, we have to let you go because you're just not right for this, but you've already spent three million on filming that you have to go back and refilm. I can't imagine, you know, being in those shoes and, and just having kind of the guts to go with your instinct and not knowing or knowing that you made the wrong decision. Good for Bob Zemeckis. And the the cool part about the story is Eric Stoltz found, found the same way. And you know who he confided in of all people? Peter Bogdanovich. Really? Yeah. I don't know what the, if he was like a mentor or something, but he like called him and said, they just um, fired me from this. No, gig. he said before they fired him, he was like, I don't, I'm not like on board with the direction that Spielberg and Zemeckis are taking. And he's like, I think I'm wrong for this part. He even knew. 
So I, I don't think he was hurt at being let go. And sometimes you got to make those hard decisions. It's just that that can't be easy. Do you think the influence of Jaws is realized in this film? Sure. <clears throat> With all the production problems that Jaws has and being way over budget and late and the shark, which is essentially a casting problem, even though it's not, it's yeah. a casting problem. Yeah. I think Spielberg was familiar with this idea of if it's over budget mm -hmm. and late, that's better than under budget and on time and wrong. And wrong. Yep. Let's just do what we need to do to get it right. Even if we overspend, because if you say like, let's say you're eight weeks into shooting mm -hmm. principal photography, you fire Eric Stoltz. You've got to go ahead and reshoot all that. And then you're assuming, and I know that doesn't matter much because I think they thought the gal that was going to be Michael J. Fox's Marty's girlfriend. Oh, yeah. Chemistry. Mm -hmm. How does he play with mom? How does he play with Crispin Glover? All that's in play too. So are you going back to full screen test? Probably not because well, they, they wanted they, Michael J. Fox to begin with. And they recasted the girlfriend. And then in the second film too. <laughs> right? That part. So... I think Spielberg's history with watching that happen in Jaws gave him enough of a familiarity in that space to go ahead and say, let's just get it right. Yeah. So, so I'm glad that he and Zemeckis did that because you showed me the trailer for the first, yeah. like the teaser trailer for the Eric Stoltz version. The tone in that is, it's it's risky businessy. Oh, good. Doesn't it feel risky yeah, businessy? Paul Schrader. -y. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of... Instead of this. Instead of what it was. Because this, to me, this film is fun while being exciting and the stakes are real too at the same time. And uh, Michael J., that's like the epitome of him. Like, that's him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So then he's like, I got to tra track Doc down. I got to figure out what's going on here. And we get this, these great exchanges. Doc. I'm from the future. I came here in a time machine that you invented. Now, I need your help to get back to the year 1985. My God. Do you know what this means? <laughs> it means that this damn thing doesn't work at all. This you got to help me. You were the only one who knows how your time machine works. So we we'll want to talk about our, our next terms coming up here, which is going to be the crisis of the film, the, the combo that we're trying to get to, to solve to me, there's two kind of running parallel together. And again, we talk a lot about, you know, films that have like the gas pedal element on them where there's an intensity to get to an inevitable conclusion and nothing better than that, than a ticking time, time. element. <laughs> it sounds like we're being punny, but we're not. It's like so apt for this film. Right. There's two. Doc, I need to get out of 1955. I have a life in 1985. I got to get back there. We don't have plutonium, which is gonna what makes this thing run. How else are we going to make the 1.21 gigawatts, which is my name in fantasy baseball this year, if that ever happens. <laughs> awesome. Well, to that. <laughs> to that. MLB, if you're listening to Rice Smile Films, so help me God, if you strike over a reduced season when there is literally no live sports, yeah. I'm done with you. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. Yeah. They cannot screw this up. I don't mean to hijack the conversation, but no, you yeah. gave me this. Yeah. There is zero reason for you mm -hmm. to not get back going when it's time yeah. 
because you're unhappy with the pay structure, you can go straight to hell if that's how you feel. <laughs> and I, I'm a huge baseball fan. Yeah, yeah. I so, want it too. Okay, so I don't mean to do that, yeah. but bullshit. Yeah. I want 1.21 gigawatts to win this year. Damn right. So we have, you know, this whole kind of breakdown. I, we got to get me back to time. And then we find out that there's a possibility with that. If we could somehow harness this lightning, channel it into the flux capacitor, it just might work. Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. Okay, all right. Saturday's good. Saturday's good. I can spend a week in 1955. I can hang out. You can show me around. Marty, that is completely out of the question. You must not leave this house. You must not see anybody or talk to anybody. Anything you do could have serious repercussions on future events. Do you understand? Yeah, sure. Okay. Marty, have you interacted with anybody else today besides me? I'm... Yeah, well, I might have sort of bumped into my parents. Great Scott! Let me see that photograph again of your brother. Uh, Just as I thought. This proves my theory. Look at your brother. So Doc just explained the second conflict element. The fact that he's had an interaction with dad and mom, he's put a ripple in the time, the natural flow of time of his parents' meeting that he's literally being wiped from existence. Mm -hmm. And we, we even have the visual of it, this photo in his wallet of the siblings that are slowly just fading away. Genius. So not only do we have to wait until Saturday to get him back, and that's our one chance to get him back, but he's got to get the parents back together the way, in some way, otherwise he won't exist anymore. The bully's chasing you. You're working with a lesser version or a less informed version of the doctor that holds the key to you getting back to the future. Your mom's ready to jump your bones. Your dad's a complete pussy um, <laughs> and a disaster. Uh, you know, you don't have the plutonium necessary to create the gigawatts in order to fire up the engines on the DeLorean, which never works anyway. Yeah, the odds are against you. About the only th conflict that isn't present in the past is the Libyans. Mm -hmm. And what we've done then is now we've created a nice structure where every decision that Marty makes is going to be met with some conflict or resistance from the uh, forces that are opposing him. Yep. And some of those forces that oppose him are actually on his side. You said it earlier, and I know they're entirely different films, but it, it it's just a natural comparison because it's the last time travel movie that both of us I've seen, which or we've seen, mm -hmm. which is Endgame. Mm -hmm. Let me give you something here. Let's talk about the prequel element to traveling back in time compared to Thanos and mom mm -hmm. and dad yeah and doc brown if i was to rank the conflict or the challenges that each four of those characters would present to our opposing protagonists that's the avengers and thanos and marty versus those three people i just said mm -hmm. thanos is fourth yeah the younger doc brown is a more or a less informed Doc Brown, which heightens Marty's tension because that Doc Brown isn't as informed. Yep. The younger, more horny version of mom who's trying to seduce you in an, into an incestuous relationship mm -hmm. that not only ends your family, but it's just naturally weird. Yep. And she's aggressive, mm -hmm. troubling. Yep. 
dad doesn't even know how to talk to someone, much less kiss a girl on the dance floor. Yeah. I, mean, I can go on and on and on with the younger versions, the prequeled versions of each of those. They're so simple. Now do that with Thanos. <laughs> it's, it's, it's impossible. I don't even know what these fucking stones are. Yeah. But I'm going to figure it out. And the screenwriters make the most glare. It, it was so clear to me today. The most glaring admission to not understanding how time travel works in in game compared to how it works in Back to the Future is Marty and the skateboard and all that stuff in 1955 versus Thanos sitting on the what will be battlefield, letting Nebula go do everything and literally admitting, I'm just going to sit here. Come back to me when you found the glove and the jewels. Mm -hmm. That's admitting, I don't know what to do with this guy. Mm -hmm. That in a nutshell, ladies and gentlemen, is good writing versus atrocious with a capital A writing. Well, you know what I like about it a lot in this film is obviously it's a film about time travel, but to me, kind of not. It's a film about a guy trying to like reconnect with his family. Gee, what a common theme that we <laughs> like for you and I. Wait, you like movies about family? I do. Huh. That's weird. And even the Doc Brown element, like you said, it's sort of this grandfatherly father element that yeah. he has. Like it's so it's so clear and so simple and what they're trying to uh, uh strive for it's just i'm so on board with it and so i stopped thinking less about the science and i'm more engaged with the conflict again we talked about it man I, I, we should have had a jar out <laughs> you know the, the cursed jar that we never put out yeah we should have had a jar out for every time we've said less is more yeah. simple is better yeah because this movie is a shining example yep. of that very concept so as he tries to get the parents together he keeps messing it up more adding more fuel to the crisis conflict of this of this film yeah. and he tries to persuade dad he comes to his room blasting van halen and he's darth vader from planet vulcan he's gonna melt my brains <laughs> trying to get him to go talk to lorraine with this thing and in comes biv and then marty looks he gives him a wallop gets on the skateboard we see the skateboard payoff again with the with the car and everything and the oh shit moment when they slam into the manure. But she, this is even just like more evidence for Lorraine that like, man, Calvin, what a dreamboat. Like he's not helping the situation one iota. It keeps getting worse. Right. Yeah. And I love, I, 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 I like that about this film. And even, and we're going to talk about it here coming up, the, the, the clock tower sequence. Things get worse and worse and worse and worse before they get better. But when they get better, the, the payoff is so satisfying that you're just like, yeah, like you almost want to applaud like when you're when you're watching it. And so the big kind of crux of this is here's something we didn't mention, you know, with screenplay writing, which is character and dialogue, which honestly might be our least favorite part of writing. It's pain. <laughs> it really is, because mm -hmm. you're trying to come up with how people naturally talk, and that's that's really hard. Well, because you write like you talk. Yeah. It's tough. I think this uh, screenplay does something pretty brilliant, especially with the Doc Brown character and being that they kind of give him his own language. Mm -hmm. He's fast talking. It's very scientific. It's very highbrow, but it's very comedic at the same time. Mm -hmm. There's that line there when they're in the high school hallways and he walks past the enchantment under the sea poster. It's a school dance. Mm -hmm. And he's like, some social uh, uh, hierarchy gathering of... of <laughs> rhythmic movement. Rhythmic movement, yeah. It's so over-explained. 
but that's how his brain works. Yep. That's giving your character his own dialect. And it makes him so unique. That's why we remember Doc Brown right. to this day. Yes. That's the screenwriters. That's Zemeckis and Bob Gale. That's, they understand what type of characters they're working with, mm-hmm. like, really well. And, and even, that's a lot. I mean, think about that line. Mm-hmm. To take something that's really knowing your character before you put pen to paper, not really, but you know what I'm saying, type, fade mm-hmm. in. To be able to explain dancing in a Doc Brown way, mm-hmm. a rhythmic movement, a ritual rhythmic movement. A ritual or, of rhythmic movement, yeah. And they really have figured out that character. They know him so well. Mm-hmm. Because most people would just say dance, but Doc Brown says, yes, dancing, and we know what he means, but in his own way. It's just, yeah, that line is so, so well-crafted. Well, well, something we but do. But he's been like that the whole film. Yeah. They've done that with him the whole and movie. And it makes sense. So it's not weird for us. It gets a chuckle out of us, but it, that's not how you explain that as, as normal people. Right, no. One thing we do with characters, we spend a lot of, before we even write fade in and get started, not only are we planning these all these beats that we're talking about, but we spend a good majority of time with the characters. On the casting couch. Yeah. casting <laughs> couch. We do. In the armchair. Yeah. And, yeah, thinking about who could play them to give me a visual, because I'm a very visual person. Mm-hmm. But then kind of thinking about stuff that we don't really see in the finished product or on the page, which is... Maybe back, like, what, what, where did this character start from? Like, what happened? What are their wants, needs, and apparitions of this story? And maybe some of that doesn't come true, but what it does, it helps in elements like that. It helps figure out how people talk, how they act, or or just how they move about. Because you don't need to tell someone how to act. But if they're reading, the, it just comes across so naturally. The question that you and I ask each other a lot in those sessions is, would that character say this? Mm-hmm. So let me give you a thought about this writing dialogue stuff. Okay. I love the show Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Have you watched it? Mm-mm. It's on Peacock, which I think used to be Paramount. It's Kevin Costner's oh, yeah. Westerner. Mm-hmm. It's Western. It's sort of Dallas-like from the 80s, but okay. not. And it's fantastic. It's really well written, but every crisis moment is met with Regardless of the character, like the three big ones, a very simple, sage, wise take on humanity that is essentially a polite F you as they speak. And they're all well written, but it becomes a bit repetitive. Yeah. That's that example. Another example of that was as for as long as I could stand The Walking Dead, I think I made it like five seasons and I had to leave. There was a very clear indication when a character was going to die in that film. Mm-hmm. And that's they gave their human condition, slice of life, a little too poetic and prophetic about man's human state. And you knew within two episodes they were going to die. The minute you sat on the patio and contemplated yeah. man's inner machinations in that show, it was curtains. And you could like predict it to the letter. Even though I liked, I really like Yellowstone, and for a while I liked The Walking Dead, it's not a vote of confidence. Yeah. Nobody in this movie speaks the same way. They all are unique. And for everybody out there that's never crafted one of these, that is just an arduous task of sitting there and running lines in your head with imaginary characters in a situation 
that may not even be a situation by the time you get through the 15th draft yeah. over what this character would say to this specific character about this specific thing. And that's why, again, we're highlighting one line in Doc Brown because that's the one you chose. But it's a really great example of when you have figured that out and decoded your character and become so familiar with them that you can get them to speak in that manner in an entirely made up scenario about a common thing that happens, high school dances. Yep. It's mastery over your craft. That's just, there's no other way to say it other than it's just mastery over your craft. Yeah. I don't know how Bob Gale, he's got a nice career, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I don't know why he's not more recognizable in the screen community. I mean, like Bordello of Blood didn't do him any favors. And, <laughs> You, you know what I mean? Like there's, but everybody's got a few choices in there that are questionable. Yeah. Yeah. You basically, it's all back to the future stuff with exception of like the three films that we mentioned a little while ago. It's, it's kind of a strange, it career, is strange. isn't it? Yeah. I was looking at it before we got going and it's, yeah. it's not, it's not remarkable. So then we get to the kind of conclusion of act two, which has been just act two, just in a nutshell, if you're just kind of, you know, for a frame of reference is just all this Hill Valley shenanigans and trying to figure out how to get me back to the future. Our midpoint probably being that that little soundbite that I played. This is how we're going to do it. This is what you can't do. you got to get your parents together. It becomes the whole rest of the film. The beginning of Act 3 is literally night of the dance yeah. and setting up the clock tower for the rig. And you got to go make sure your parents get together. And Lorraine's going to the dance with him. And like It's, it's so messed up at this point. And then when we have that incestuous moment, she kisses him and she says... It's like I'm kissing my brother. Like even she figures out that it's weird. She doesn't know why yet, but and that's when she's like she's drinking from this bottle. She's smoking, and Marty's just flipping out. It's like, Mom, this isn't you. This, this, you never told me any of this. And then here here rolls Biff again, and Biff Biff's cronies, Mister Billy Zane. <laughs> so they go lock him in in Marvin Berry's in the back of his car. Well, Biff's gonna go have his way with Lorraine, and. George and Marty have this whole scenario concocted. They're going to like kind of do the same thing, but like he's going to come in and cold cock him. Yeah. But when he opens that door and it's Biff and it's this guy that's, I don't think that that actor, uh, Thomas F. Wilson's like super like tall. He's probably, probably like my height or a little taller. Michael J. Fox is like five feet. But he's five. So he towers over everybody and they show through camera, like just how imposing he is and, mm -hmm. it, and it works. It does. And then especially in this bit and here's George McFly who can never man up in any situation he's about to get his arm ripped off by Biff. And then it's, it's great. This, this scene, it almost warrants just kind of like just standing up and like applauding because man, he just, I love movie punches that are just unrealistic like this one where he just, yeah. And just turns around. It's a turnaround punch. Mm -hmm. You got hit so hard. You have to do a three sixty. <laughs> I mentioned the music earlier. This is a great score by Alan Silvestri and a great melodic theme that gets played out. And we talked about this with E.T. about how you're supposed to feel based on how the theme's played. Well, let's just kind of play a little of that now. Are you okay? Such an important moment. Triumphant. Triumphant. 
melancholy. It's it it's it's slow. It's a slow moment. The music lets us that, but this is big for George. This is the first time he's done anything like this. I love those two little students. They're like, who is that? Mm-hmm. That's George because he's a nobody at this school. Now he's somebody. Knocked the hell out of Biff. Yeah. Yeah, the music is a little bit uh, probing at the beginning, like maybe curious mm-hmm. as to what's going to come next, like George is in this. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I just knocked this guy out, and now what? And then as you come to a reckoning of what you've just accomplished, the music realizes that, and you get the crescendo with the accompaniment of the like the flutes with yeah. some strings and some other mm-hmm. um, or- or- orchestral movements. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, you know, we talk a lot about John Williams. Mm-hmm. We haven't mentioned Alan Silvestri a lot. His name is all over these films from the 1980s as well. You and know, it's really, he's also terrific. You got to go back and watch the scene when the Libyans show, the Libyans, when the Libyans show up and then there's like this like, dun, 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 dun. it's like this dun, 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 with the snare drum. Yeah. He did Predator. That sounded like Predator, like, like that sounded like Predator music to me. Like, yeah, he's got, he's got some good credits to his. Mr. Avengers, he did that theme too. Yeah. So, no, yeah, like a lot of great composer, James Horner, Hans Zimmer, Mm -hmm. all these guys coming out of like the 80s, like turning out some like really great iconic themes. But again, just talking about how music can evoke tone, we know exactly how we're supposed to feel in that exact moment just with that. It's really great. So the good news is is I think we've conquered the Biff and mom and dad and incest and the family dynamic is back in place. Kind of. But we're going to get to your favorite sequence, which is, so he's busted Marvin Berry's hand, or he sliced it trying to get him out of the trunk. So now Marty, who hasn't been able to prove his worth on the guitar the entire film. We saw him blowing out the speakers. We saw him failing at the gig. Now here's his chance to play Earth Angel. He kills it. But which is the gig he didn't get at his high school. He finally locks it down in yep. 1955. Yeah. But he's a little ahead of himself, huh? Exactly. And then, but I like this moment too, because George still has to, he still has to plant a kiss on Lorraine to kind of seal the deal. And it's a moment that George has to do on his own because Marty's up on stage. Mm -hmm. Marty's literally fading away. And he's, there's like a shred on the photograph left. And I like that moment when George, like some guy just jumps in and starts dancing with her. And he says, no, I have this. And then they start and then they kiss. And we see his growth kind of complete now. And that's going to have ramifications in the future when we see future George, who's this more confident individual, thanks to his son. Yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, and then we get the great moment. You said it was, it was like your favorite sequence, which is the the Chuck Berry Johnny B. Good moment. So great. <laughs> Marvin Berry is Chuck Berry's. Is it brother? Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, you know that new or sound co- you've been looking for? Or your cousin? Cousin. Mm-hmm. I think I might have found it. And he puts the phone up so he can hear him. I love it. They're just they're just so stunned. <laughs> I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. But your kids are gonna love it. <laughs> so, Amen. And he just yeah, over the back, on the floor, like he just like it starts out exciting and then it's just like the little duck walk thing. Yeah, yeah. Chuck Berry. Yeah. <laughs> and then he gets on the phone with him. Charlie, this is your cousin Marvin Berry. <laughs> <laughs> so good. It's funny. Yeah, playing with time and how 
how we can kind of craft some clever jokes out of it. Uh, that's why we didn't even talk about the Ronald Reagan one, which always cracks me up. Like, who's the president right now? Ronald Reagan, the actor <laughs> who's vice president, Dean Martin. <laughs> I bet Jane Wyman is secretary of state. And then that the marquee for the Stanwick Reagan film. Yep. I don't even know what movie that is. No, no, I've seen it. <laughs> but it's Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, being aware of the time yeah. is important too. And they get a lot of one-liners, but it creates a roundedness to the film. Mm -hmm. Like it rounds it out. Yeah. Actions have consequences. The world has significance going forward. It's all interconnected. Time. All of this time has mattered. Well, Marty likes to say heavy a lot, and Doc takes that as literal. Why does I keep talking about weight? Yeah, why is everything so heavy? That doesn't apply here. Yeah. Really good. So now that's repaired and fixed, and I like that parting kind of moment between the two of them, and he's like, if you have a kid and he's eight and he burns the rug, go easy on him. Kind of calling back to probably some traumatic childhood memory of from himself. Mm -hmm. And then she said, Marty, that's that's a good name for her. That's a nice name. Crazy. And, yeah. and so that's all tied up, but we still got to get him back to the future. And this clock tower bit, he keeps wanting to tell Doc what happens to him in the future, but Doc is worried about the ramifications on the time-space continuum. And so he doesn't want any part of it. He just wants to live life. My favorite part of this entire sequence and is just how wrong everything goes. You know, it, it, it's the storm's coming. It's loud. They can barely hear each other, and the tree falls over on the thing, pulls the plug out of the, the clock tower apparatus. And they're literally against the clock right now trying to get this thing put together. And there was that great image of, of Harold Lloyd uh, hanging from the clock. That's kind of what Doc does here at the end of the film is just like hanging from like the arms of the clock. With the ticking time bomb right there front and center. I in love the middle that it's of the a clock. I yeah, love that, that it's, it's on a... the clock. Yes. Yeah. You're down to 60 seconds mm -hmm. and you do a really good job of, heightening the tension in the audience and we just about get it plugged in and then the other end of the cord comes undone. So he goes up there, he's able to jimmy some little uh, like pulley system to get it up there, but then Marty's got to go and get his 88 miles an hour and the car doesn't start. Of course it doesn't. And then the the, the, the bottom of the, the platform falls out and Doc's hanging for dear life. <laughs> and then it's like hanging onto his pant leg and it's tearing and so he's trying to get it and then when it's... He's close to getting it. It's like two inches too short because of the tree. It's, it's, it's uh, stopping the slack. You're taking the towel of water and <laughs> wringing it for every last drop. It's so good. It's, yes. it's, you're on the edge of your seat. And it's just literally for a film about time that literally everything's about time and being late. Here's one time when Marty's not going to be late and Doc's not going to be late. They're going to get this just right as Marty careens down after getting the DeLorean to start. And then when he plugs it in, he plugs it from the other end. Like it, it's just it talk about, you know, just a conflict, just escalating and escalating. And you're looking for something to relieve that tension. And you get this. You and I were like on the edge of our seats 
And we've seen this film a handful of times. We know oh, what's going to happen, but right. that's just such a nice buildup of this conflict of trying to, here's the one time we can't miss our shot. Otherwise, who knows what's going to happen? We can't waste this. And literally anything that could go wrong goes wrong. Well, there's the timing element, obviously, which is the to- the clock tower. There's a cliffhanger element, which is he almost falls off the clock tower because the structure gives way underneath his feet. And then we have Marty and the car that won't run, then now careening at 88 miles an hour for a one-shot opportunity. You miss this lightning strike, and you're stuck in 1955. Mm-hmm. You're, it's, you're stuck. And the timing has to be perfect. And we're just about there. And then Doc realizes that it's a little too short on one end. And when he finally gets it, then the other end goes, and he's got to hurry back down. The lightning strike hits. And he's still holding both both of the ends, yeah. which means it's going to course through his body. <laughs> so he's going to become the lightning rod yeah. or the conduit mm-hmm. and the flux capacitor. Yeah. And he gets him plugged in just in the nick of time. Like, you've done such a good job yeah. in that. It's, what, maybe 10 minutes? It feels like 20 because there's so many things that are working against them. Mm-hmm. It's one after another, after another, after another, after another. Can I say something here? Just kind of a statement. I, we, no. You and, <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> you and I have varying degrees of film opinions, and we we agree on some stuff. We disagree. Um, you have your favorite films. I have mine. Your favorite sequences. I have mine. I have no problem stating this on Rice Smile Films right now. I think this whole clock tower sequence, this is one of the top five best sequences in all of film. It's so well done. The music, the writing, the stakes, the acting. There's a reason I'm on the edge of my seat still to this day, and I get goosebumps during that little bit. It's To me, that scene stands the test of time. No question. Yeah. I, I, I can't say top five. Yeah, I yeah, have yeah. to think about it, but certainly mm-hmm. it's up there. It, it's Again, I've said it earlier. It's mastery over your craft. And I think the success of Back to the Future mm-hmm. is solely and originally in its writing. Now the characters delivered and it was executed well, but using this as a template for what good writing is, you can't go wrong. That's all written. None of that's ad-libbed. Yeah. All of that whole sequence isn't like, go be funny on screen, Jack Lemon, or yeah. Jim Carrey, go be Jim Carrey. You got 30 seconds here, do something funny. Mm-hmm. Et al, you know, E.T. period, A.L. period, et al. <laughs> Just go with it. Um, this is scripted and conscious and aware of, like I said, taking a towel that's filled with conflict water and wringing every last drop out of it. Yeah. Jesse, I don't disagree with that. Again, I don't, I don't sure. Maybe five. I don't know. Yeah. About that, but yes, it's, it's a masterpiece mm-hmm. in this space. So now we're kind of tying up that. So he gets back to 1984, putting it back 10 minutes. So he hopes he can warn doc in time about the Libyans, but he, even when he gets there, the Libyans pass him on the street and he's like, the, the DeLorean won't start again. Again, that's like the third or fourth time that it just hasn't like started. It's great. So he's in, it just, he's on his feet now. He's got a race and he's not in time again, late. And we see doc shot up again. We see uh future past Marty get in the DeLorean and he's off to, to his journey he's going over there and he's just like, he's like, doc, like, why didn't you read the letter and this and that? And we see him open his eyes and it's just so brilliant. He, he pulls out the envelope all taped up like that. He tore up 
And he says, Doc, what did you say about all the, 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 the consequences and this and that? And he's like, well, I figured, what the hell? It's just, it's just, it fits so well. Mm-hmm. It's so perfect for, for the two of them there. So then they have some nice parting lines and he's going off to the future. He wants to see the next 25 World Series and how things are going to turn out. And it's this next sequence of events that are just, you've watched the whole film for kind of this moment. You kind of see, again, the the ramifications of screwing around in the past have actually had a positive outcome on Marty's life. Brothers, moderately successful businessman, daughter, or sister has many men in her life. Dad's a confident author. Mom's not all pudgy how she was or alcoholic. She's like looking really good. And even Marty, and earlier in the film when they're in the town square of Hill Valley, he's like, man, I wish I could have a car. And he picks out this like uh, four by four truck. Truthfully, Marty did get a car in this film. He got a really cool car. Boy, yeah. yeah, the time machine. So even that. When it ran. Yeah, even that fits. But he opens up and his whole life has changed. He he owns this car and he, he doesn't even know. Right. And then Biff. Biff is not this confident toting bully. He's like literally like a bum washing cars now. Yeah, this clown in a terrible tracksuit with bad hair. Mm-hmm. Waxing. All changed from this the events that we just previously saw in the film. We've seen the the now positive outcomes of this. And yeah, it's just, it's it's just great. And now he's he wanted to have this weekend, and we get the mom saying, "I like that Jennifer. She's a nice girl." But then we get the return of Doc, and he's like all decked out in future wear. And here's what I like about screenplays: I don't think you and I like sequels, and we like expanded universes, and we have a lot of fun with that. I don't think screenplays should ever intentionally try and set up sequels. I think we talk about tell one good story first and then see where that goes. Sure. What this is, though, instead is this is just like the icing on the top of the cake. This is just a little bit of like a tease at what you want without giving it to you. Mm -hmm. In the parting lines, Doc, you're going to need to back up the line or we won't have enough room to get up to 88. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. And the car is flying now. Yeah. Cut to black, Huey Lewis back in time. Had they never made another Back to the Sequel uh, or Back to the Future sequel, I would have been pretty happy. Yeah. That's a nice tease at the end, mm-hmm. but um, it gives you a, it, it leaves you wanting more while leaving you satisfied at the same time. That's Great. how that's how the film should work well if, you're, said. if you're trying to set up a sequel. And that's how the movie should end. You can't be Amazing Spider-Man two and tease an entire Sinister Six and never get to make it satisfied <laughs> through an unexpected event. That's mm-hmm. how your ending should be, mm. and this is that. You didn't see it getting there, but you like it, and it checks all the boxes for you to have the story completed. Excellent. Let's talk money. We always talk money. $19 million budget. That was probably a little inflated because they had to go back and film some of these sequences. Yeah. $389 million gross. It was the biggest film of 85. Again, 11 weeks at number one. It will n- Even E.T. had the crazy record that it had. What was the release date? Do you know? I mean, July 3rd. Okay. Oh. Yeah. We'll never see 11 consecutive weeks at number number one. Like those days are just so gone. gone. Gone are the days where one film just totally took over the summer. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Nominated for, um, I think it won sound effects editing, which always seems to be the award that's won on the films we talk about. Mm-hmm. Nominated for best original screenplay. So there is that. Recognizing that this was something wholly original, spec, speculation screenplay. 
hits all the beats, we all the setups and payoffs, everything's tied up in the end. The legacy of this film, you know, we get back to the future two and three. And I think I said last week that I'm not like entirely fond of those sequels. I really like this film. There's the video games. There's there was the ride at Universal Studios, which was amazing, and it just had a whole legacy unto itself. We get the, the the Huey Lewis songs that were written for this film, "Power of Love" and and "Back in Time." I think a lot of legacy just kind of built in this in this one little vehicle here. Yeah. Did you see this when it came out? I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the theater a few times, and then in heavy rotation on cable. So, as much as I saw it once upon a time, it'd been a while. But yeah, I've seen this movie. Probably thirty times. Nice. We'd, it was on every morning at eight o'clock. We watched it all the time, <laughs> every summer. It was it was a film in my youth too. Whether it was TBS Superstation or TNT, this film was always on TV. Mm-hmm. So I got I got a lot of, of viewings of it. Now I had to be careful because they redo some of the scenes in Back to the Future Two in this one. So you didn't kind of know sometimes which one you were watching. Good thing you had that. You remember the preview channel? Oh, it yeah. was like whatever channel, but it was just a rotating scroll of what was gonna be. <laughs> I yes. <laughs> do you remember that? I do. Now you just hit a button and you're, and you're told such such simpler times. Yeah. I kind of thought about that too. Um, in that soda pop, uh, restaurant sequence, mm-hmm. everyone looked like they were having a lot of fun there with their milkshakes and their rock and roll and da- dancing. Like today, that would be like people on their phones. It'd be like such a drag in like a place like that. Like even to be a part, like to go back in time and be a part of like people interacting with each other, like that could. That had to have been just amazing. <laughs> Isn't that a function of time right now, too? Exactly. Amen. Yeah, or not. Matt, what's your favorite tasting note of Back to the Future? The part that I really, really remember so crystal clear from way back when till now of all the strange moments is Crispin Glover's hand clenching into that fist. It's such a triumphant moment, and Biff knows it's coming because he looks right at it, and he can't do anything about it. And I do think that Crispin Glover is an interesting character, and we could talk about maybe missed careers, and I think he would probably be on that list of what was and what never became. And he's in the conversation because he's clearly talented, but mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. That moment when he's sort of hunched over with his hand be- or his arm behind his back and that arm bar that Biff has, ha- has him in, the way his fists clench, you can almost hear his knuckles mm-hmm. cracking. And I remember that so vividly from all those years ago because I think it's such a triumphant moment. It's the bully getting his just desserts, and boy, does he deserve them. And he delivers it in spades. That's probably, you know, I love the rock and roll bit. Um but I think I'm going to go with that. that That's punch, good. The punch. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great moment. Yeah. Thank you. What do you got? They had, they had a, like a, like a rescreening of this a couple of years ago and I went to go see it. And when he clinches up and punches Biff, this movie's 35 years old now. Did the theater applaud? They applauded. That's they just, great. they really? lost. It was so cool. That's it, great. Cause the, you're, you, that's like, it's built up to have that moment. Uh, well, it mine's the clock tower. I can't walk back the top five sequences of all time because yeah. I really feel that in my in my film heart. It's just it's it's so expertly put together. Zemeckis, everyone involved, Alan Silvestri's score. It's it's per. There's something I like too about 1980s film lightning. Really, 
the look of it, whether it's in Ghostbusters or Poltergeist, like because it it's obviously just like a matte painting optic, so it's it's not real, but it's not quite like refined like CGI can make lightning. It's kind of almost like it's drawn. Mm. So I like that too. Like, and then this has a, like a great lightning strike sequence. So oh, yeah, yeah I, re- I really like that. Good. What's the, oh, my God. I need to take a shot moment of back to the future. To me, it's, it's just M- Marty making just, it's so awkward with his mom and just, just can't keep it, her hands off of him. I think for me, it's the Crispin Glover as a peeping Tom. Oh. <laughs> George as the peeping Tom. Um, you know, for as repressed and backwards as he is in the film, mm-hmm. he's still trying to address the current of like Mother Nature that's running through him. Not in a healthy way. Not yeah. supporting that. But that he's peeping, you know. <laughs> he's really a weird dude. Yeah. Yeah, so that's mine. Excellent. Yeah. Master Distiller, doing a whole thing on the screenplay of the film. I think we both kind of have to pick Zemeckis and Bob Gale on this one. Yeah. They made something pretty special. Again, something that's not done a lot today. I mean, we get sequel after sequel and intellectual property after intellectual property. And that's that's what I kind of like about the 1980s film docket was it was so much speculation screenplay coming out weekly. People weren't afraid to take a risk. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you get great stuff sometimes. I think you have to think. Sometimes you don't. Yeah, sometimes you don't. But that doesn't mean that an established property is going to guarantee that it comes out great either. I think just Spielberg just had so much confidence here in 1985, like Jaws, Raiders, E.T., that he could get behind and put some money behind some great ideas, whether that's Gremlins, that, the Goonies, young Sherlock Holmes, (laughs) it's like whatever Mm -hmm. he kind of did in there. Uh, yeah, it's just such a legacy that he kind of left behind with that Amblin Entertainment. Well said. Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah we have to pick them. It's it's a great screenplay, and you can go watch Citizen Kane and make your beats by. It's a great movie. Like we'll we'll have to do Citizen Kane one of these days because we we get to talk about Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton. And Joseph Cotton. <laughs> Joseph Cotton. But man, if if you want to just know how to like format these screenplays and take a crack at it for yourself, man, you could look at some like examples like this and be like. Man, this is how I could write some pretty unique dialogue. This is how I can create some really intense conflict through writing. Uh, I think this is a great example. Ghostbusters is a good one, too, for unique protagonists, unique occupations. Yeah, The Apartment's a good one, too, if you're looking to sort of base a screenplay on what you want to do. The, I would recommend The Apartment. But, yeah. yeah, those are all fantastic choices. We'll have to think of another one, too, so we can do this episode again. Because I like talking about just, like, just structure and how things... Because you look at things differently when you watch films. Yeah. I swear to God, when you go watch a movie pre-1950, when the film fades, it's literally the end of Act 1 or Act 3. Like, it's un... You can't unsee it. It's Some like it hot. It's so clear when you watch those old films. Oh. they lo- Yeah, they revel in it. It's like Beat City, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Mankiewicz. <laughs> All those guys. Heartbeat City. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's album by the cars. Different thing. How are you going to rate and grade Back to the Future, Matt? Top Shelf. You have to. Yeah. High concept idea, delivered well, wildly entertaining, has held up well. There's not a chagrin moment in it. I'm satisfied at the end. Uh, it was as enjoyable at this point in my life it was as it was when I watched it the first time. I, I, what else do you need for a vote of top shelf on this? Nope. Yeah. yeah. Top shelf. Me too. Yeah. 
depending on how I'm feeling at the time of the day, the week, the year, there's three films in the 1980s that really stick out to me as being like, man, they're pretty, pretty damn perfect. Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and this one. I thought you were gonna say Die Hard. Oh, that one too. Yeah, <laughs> that one too. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't see Empire. I should. Yeah, of course. But and, Empire should be in that list too. Yeah. Depending on how I'm feeling, man, sometimes I kind of want to put Back to the Future like ahead of those ones sometimes. Okay. And then sometimes it's Raiders, sometimes it's Empire, yeah, sometimes it's Die Hard. But th- this is such a perfect, like, it, I, there's the qualms you could have with it or whatever. But, man, you just have such a good time watching it. And you're just so satisfied and excited and on the edge of your seat. And, man, a movie from 1985 that gives me goosebumps still, there's something to that. For everybody out there that's a critic or a, a film teacher that says, screenwriting teacher, you know, you're supposed to follow the beats, but all of the things that the beats tell you to do make it an impossibly to have a good story. There's movies like this that come along that say, no, no, if you actually do this right, you'll get this and you get Ghostbusters. Um, well, there's definitely exceptions to the rule. Pulp Fiction doesn't follow any of what we talked about today, and that film's brilliant. And so, yeah, that's a one guy thing, <laughs> right? Um, and cursed the rest of his career, in my opinion, mostly. Yeah. But. <clears throat> If, if you want to believe that if you follow the beats and play in the philosophy of story, this movie is your champion in that arena because it does so. Like you said, there's arguments against and other examples, but this is a really good example of if you are in that camp, this is your movie. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Excellent. Well, let's get to our nightcap. Dang it, they took out that Back to the Future right to and put in some like Simpsons bullshit in there. Ugh, it's, just, it's just not the same. No. It's just not the same. Mm-mm. Pretty, we talked about the casting change of Eric Stoltz to Michael J. Fox, which ultimately kind of, that's kind of a, a lot of what makes this film work as well. It's not the first time that's happened. There's been casting changes after the film has been done, like like Katie Holmes to Maggie Gyllenhaal in the Nolan Batman films. Uh, there's been uh, casting changes in utero like this. <laughs> Man, what's another casting change that was made that actually worked? I hope we don't pick the same one. On I don't this. think we are. Okay. Michelle Pfeiffer instead of Sean Young is Catwoman. Mm. Yes. So I guess Sean Young was at some place where she was demanding an audience at the, in Hollywood at the time. Post Blade Runner, post whatever that Costner for No Way Out. Was that No Way no Out? No Way Out, yeah. Hot enough property in, in Hollywood and had been given, from all accounts that I know, the opportunity to play Catwoman in Batman 2. Well, I, second. I, I think I told you she was Vicki Vale and then like... Lost that. Or, or got hurt in a horse riding accident. So she shows up on whatever show. Was it Leno? I think, it's, I think it was Joan Rivers. Whoever the hell it was, yeah. and her Catwoman's bragging, talking, and they fired her ass. She kind of, kind of a little bit like kind of drunk on the show. Okay, so let me tell you about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Once upon a time, I was at this is some time ago, but I was at a director's guild event, Ooh, okay. the DGA. Yeah. And she was one of the presenters. Mm. No, she wasn't. She was in the front row. 
And somebody got up to present, and she was so snot-slinging drunk that they actually had to bring security in. Oh, wow. And escort her from the event. So the DGA, Directors Guild um, Awards, is like one of the big events in the award season. Mm -hmm. And, man, if I'm not mistaken, I think Vanessa Williams was up on stage presenting. God bless Vanessa Williams. Mm -hmm. And Sean Young just lost her mind. And they had to drag her out and just like wow. just sloppy Jesse. I mean, just an absolute mess. And there's plenty of stories of Sean Young's precipitate fall from grace through alcohol and whatever the hell else. Yeah. But regardless, I think Catwoman's an interesting character because you can look at it two ways. Do you want the sort of buxom kind of Anne Hathaway sort of look that I I mean kind she's not really that, but she's sort of yeah. curvy mm -hmm. in a good way. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be you know, ugly oh, yeah. about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or then there's the Michelle Pfeiffer that is, um, I don't want to say waifish, but kind of seductress. Oh yeah, for sure. She's very femme fatale-ish. Yeah, Stanwick like. Ooh. And so maybe that's part of it for me. But anyway, that's a much better cast. Oh, that's. I didn't even honestly. I should be ashamed of myself, Batman guy. That's why I, for certain we were going to do the same one. That's brilliant because Michelle Pfeiffer, honestly, because that. To me, that film's lazy in in a few ways. With you know Michael Keaton not really wanting to be there, and it's too Tim Burtony for my my, my taste. Mm -hmm. She owns that film. Yeah. If we ever did Batman Returns, which would be an interesting conversation, Master Distiller for sure. Mm -hmm. I'd give it to her right now. So yeah, thank God that didn't go that way because yeah. I think Sean Young in that role would have been an awful yeah. awful choice. Do you like her? Let me. I know we talk about Blade Runner a lot. You and I. Also. Yeah. No, she, do, you, she, do you like her in Blade Runner? She's good in that. Okay. Yeah. And she came back for the twenty forty nine one too. Yeah. Awesome. I love your choice. Mine's another one that happened in utero. Mm -hmm. so I got Nirvana on the mind. Yeah. <laughs> that happened. They had already had an actor cast. I'm going back to 1979. This is Apocalypse Now. And in the role of Captain Willard, Harvey Keitel, mm. and Coppola had to make the hard decision too. I think he had the same conversation that Zemeckis had to have was like, you're not right for this role. Amongst all the other things going wrong on that film. I was going to say, that was the deal breaker on that film? Yeah. Where do you start? Malaria wasn't, I yeah. guess, but we'll go with that. To go with Martin Sheen instead. Oh, wow. And oh, yeah. Martin Sheen owns that 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 role. Because he's fish out of water, kind of another story. We see everything through his eyes. And there's nothing more evident of that than in that opening sequence with the Doors music and him just like on some three-week bender in his hotel room just smashing things naked in just the the fury it's like an appetizer to the war and destruction that we're gonna see in the coming film that's martin sheen and he was going through some shit while they made that film and he had a heart attack while they made it like <laughs> but what's on screen is it's a masterpiece it's, it's it's utterly brilliant i don't think it'd be i like harvey Keitel. mean streets reservoir dogs i love him as an actor i don't think it works the same with him wouldn't have been the same. He's too at all. rough. Harvey Keitel. Martin Sheen has a little bit of kind of warmth and like naivete to him. That sounds weird, but like <laughs> kind of. Yeah, it's Harvey Keitel is like a Jack Palance. Um, there's just <laughs> Jack Palance. Yeah. A, yes. A facade. A, a, so a stern. Toughness about them. Mm -hmm. And if you take someone that's a bit more ingenue like and put them in there, it worked. And that's a great choice. Mm -hmm. That's a good one, Jesse. Yeah. Martin Sheen. Much better than Harvey Keitel. Not, and it's not on ability. It's just simply look. I thought about the example I gave. Don Cheadle is actually, I, I like him as roadie versus, yeah, look look at you. War Machine show yeah. on today. 
not that Terrence Howard's not a capable, like he's really great, but mm-hmm. I don't think he was having fun with it. No. Don Cheadle kind of came on and was like, I know what this is, and I like Don Cheadle too. So yeah. I think he stuck around for whatever nine films he's in. <laughs> good choices yeah. this week. Yeah. Those are some good ones. Yeah. It's unfortunate when it happens, but whether it's a contract dispute or just it's the wrong person at the wrong time, sometimes it happens. For the good. This has been a lot of fun talking about Back to the Future and the screenplay and just this entire saga of what this film is. We're going to wrap up this cask next week with another heavy hitter box office champion from the 1980s, Top Gun, 1986. When's the last time you've seen Top Gun, Matt? Oh, man. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm going to have to show you the my friends and I recreated the volleyball scene shot for shot. I'm, I'm going to have to show, show you that because it's just so ridiculous. But I thought appropriate to talk about Top Gun because it was the top grocer of 1986, which is kind of surprising mm-hmm, to me. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot in there for everyone. It's kind of like a romance, but it's like like an action film. Tony Scott. We haven't talked about Tony Scott before, so I'm excited to do that. I don't think we've done a Cruise film yet either. We have haven't we? done Tom Cruise, so it'll be fun to talk about him. And then a perfect appetizer because that film's coming out this Christmas. Yeah. And I'm kind of excited to see that too. Sure. It looks visually looks pretty cool. So you know, I'm really curious about that film is to see how Miles Teller does. Yeah. He's had yeah, we've been a, a bit been, of a tough year. But we've been years, a, we've been, years just plural. Yeah. Post whiplash. But we've been a fan of him in, in some of his work. I like that firefighter movie he was in, the only the brave. Okay. Pretty depressing movie. But uh no, I'm excited to to, to see how that turns out. Jennifer Connolly's in that movie too. Uh yeah, a, b- a bunch of people. But yeah, to revisit Top Gun, 86, Tony Scott, Jerry Bruckheimer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to talk about a lot of people for the first time. Heard that name. Yeah. Kenny Loggins. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, we you have that to look forward to, but cheers, Matt. Cheers. Cheers. I got to go um, get my car ready. I'm going to go take it down the road, gun it to 88, and maybe kind of go back in time to pre-quarantine. <laughs> God, can I go with? You can come with. <laughs> I'm going to make like a banana then and get out of here <laughs> with you. Excellent, everybody. We'll see you next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. Back to the Future is property of Universal Pictures and Amblin Entertainment, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough roads to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going. We don't need roads.